Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Nick, pastor of Covenant Grace Baptist Church, and we bring you greetings all the way from Timaru. Uh, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm under strict instructions not to preach longer than 30 minutes, so I'm turning a 40-minute sermon into a 30-minute sermon for you guys, knowing that you've just had a long camp. So let's, what I want to do tonight is I want to try and blow your minds on the topic of what is the church? What is the nature of the church? How do you see the church? Because your viewing affects your doing. Your perspective on a thing will affect how you act. For example, if you think you're a failure, and this is a very simple example, you won't try very hard, will you? Because how you see yourself will affect how you act. Worldview shapes action. Belief shapes doing. And in particular, identity determines activity. Paul knows this. And so in the book of Romans, as we come to chapter 12, Paul has been talking about the wonderful gospel of God. And now he comes to that place where he wants to appeal to the Romans to respond to the mercies of God by giving themselves as a living sacrifice. And as he maps out what a living sacrifice looks like, the first place where we serve and lay down our lives as a living sacrifice is in the church. So this is the first expression of your holiness, if you like, by giving yourself to the church. And before Paul really talks about the various responsibilities about how we use our gifts, he decides to give a picture of what the church actually is. He talks about the nature of the church, the identity of the church. And that's what we want to look at today as we look at uh, Romans 12, verse 4 and 5. Let's read those verses together. Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we... Though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. There is an endless tedium of wrong views about the church which result in bad church life. What we're going to be seeing from Paul today is a view of the church which, if understood, should issue in good church life. I'm going to argue today that what we see in Acts chapter 2 and what we see in Acts chapter 4 when the church of God is just so excited to be the church, if we understand church the way that Paul does, that will be the natural implication and outflowing of what Paul wants to teach us here. So the two things I'd like to draw to your attention from these verses, the first thing I want to show you is I just want to dig a little bit deeper into the concept of the church as the body. And then the second thing i like us to focus uh, our attention on is verse 5. What does Paul mean when he says we're individually members one of another? So body and members of one another. These are the being statements that we want to investigate. So let's dig in. When I say the word church, what comes to mind? What's the, what's the picture that comes into your mind? Maybe you think of the building that we're in. Maybe you think uh, more spiritually and think of the church universal. You've got the church militant on earth. You've got the church triumphant there in the intermediate state. Or uh, maybe you think of a temple made of living stones. 
Or maybe you think of a flock. Or maybe you think of the family of God. Well, Paul, out of all of those word pictures, chooses the word body. Is this significant? Is this important? Why would Paul, as he does in most of his letters, refer to the church as the body? I believe it is foundational that he does so. Now, this notion that the church is a body is not original with Paul. Uh, The philosophers used to talk about the body politic. Uh, Politicians would talk about a group or a town um, as the body of people. I mean, it's not not really radical. But what I want to argue today is this. The biblical use of the word body is, is, is much more profound than any mere metaphorical use. That's what we're going to be seeing today. So how do we get at understanding what Paul means by this word body? Well, we have to go back to the beginning of Paul. And we go back to day one of Paul's conversion, Acts 9, verse 4 and 5, where he meets with Christ on the Damascus road. And we see in Acts 9, verses 4 and 5, Jesus speaking to Paul. And he says, the verses read, And falling to the ground... He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he says? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So here is Paul acting against what he takes to be a group of heretics. And yet when Jesus appears to him, Jesus says, you have been persecuting me personally. That group of people, when you were acting against them, you were acting against me. Now, at this early point in Paul's thinking, do you think he understood the depth of the notion of the body of Christ? Probably not. But these words would have been ringing in his ears. And as he grew in his understanding of the mysteries of God, they would have proved to be foundational. And they are foundational. And they infiltrate all of his letters as he speaks about the church. So in order to get a little bit closer to what Paul means by the body, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 13. This is a portion of scripture where he most deeply investigates the notion of the church as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13 read, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So in the context, Paul is talking to the Corinthians because they were a little bit fixated on the gift of tongues. And Paul is helping them to want to desire the gifts in a better way. A way that benefits the body, not just themselves personally. And uh, he's just outlined a variety of gifts in the context. And now he chooses this notion of the body. But what I want to draw your attention to is how he ends verse 12. He uses these words, and so it is with Christ. He doesn't say, and so it is with the church, and so it is with us. He says, and so it is with Christ. Because as he's talking about the church, 
He's not just talking about any old organization. He's talking about the body of Christ. And so he goes to the reality behind the reality. Is that how you thought of the church today? You know, I'm going to go and meet with the body of Christ. That's not how we talk, is it? It's not how we view one another. We don't talk about one another or think of one another in the way that Paul does. That's what's so radical and amazing about Paul's statements. He's helping us to see the nature of the church by recognizing the spiritual foundation of our unity with one another in Christ. This is a very important perspective. He chooses to impress upon the Corinthians that we are a single body with many parts. But Paul's way of doing this is not like how, how we would do it. Because of our union with Christ, we are each, by the Spirit, joined to Him, but also to one another. You and I are not joined to the state of New Zealand in this way. You are not joined to your husbands or wives in this way. You are not joined to your children in this way. There is a distinct and eternal unity that you have with every other Christian that is unlike every other union that you experience. It is distinct and it is deep. And this is what Paul is drawing on as he seeks to help Christians live out what they are. So he identifies us with Christ, just as Jesus did when he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So let's just uh, very quickly clarify something. We live in an age where the New Age movement is around, and a lot of people might think, you're right, Nick. I am one with Christ, and I am now divine. We just want to be very clear and say, no, you are not God, and even though we are by the Holy Spirit one With the Godhead, through Christ, it is a saving union where there is no violation of the creator-creature distinction. We are not God. We we are not divinized by this union. How do we receive this union? How do we become part of this body which Paul is talking about? Well, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 tells us that every Christian is baptized or immersed into this body by the Holy Spirit when they believe. When we first believed, that was when we received the Spirit and were sealed as God's children and God's possession. If you want to become a part of the body of Christ, you didn't do it by walking into this building tonight. That's not what makes you part of the church proper. It wasn't done when you passed through the waters of baptism. That's not how you are added to the church proper. But when you hear the gospel that Jesus Christ is our only hope Uh, to save us from sin, and you put your trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes you and grafts you into Christ and makes you one with His body. And that is how we become part of the body of Christ. Baptism in water is merely the external um, of this internal reality. Another way in which Paul puts... Another example in the Bible where Paul talks about the strange reality of what the body is, is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10. You'll remember that the Corinthians were divided. One says, I'm a Paul. I'm of Apollos. And Paul has a rhetorical question for them. The question goes like this. Is Christ divided? 
doesn't say, is the church divided? He goes behind the reality of the church, all the way to the depth of the fact that we are one body with Christ. Is Christ himself divided? What's the natural implication of that? Of course not. Therefore, you should not be divided. Do you see how Paul's mind works this way? He starts with the foundational reality of what we are by virtue of our union with Christ and draws all our ethical implications from that truth. I need you to see the way that Paul thinks as a systematic theologian. Because if you learn to think like him, then you'll understand all the rules uh, as he gives them to the church. <clears throat> well, that's the first notion that I wanted us to help, uh, to help us with. We are the body of Christ. But now I want to draw your attention to Romans 12 verse 5. We've already discovered that Paul doesn't talk like us. He doesn't think like us. And I want to show you another way that he does that here in chapter 12, verse 5. Paul says, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And here's the strange part. Individually, members one of another. That's very strange language. That's strange talk. If you actually stop and you think about what that means, I'm a part of you and you're a part of me. We're unified. Now, <clears throat> there are other times and other places where Paul doesn't talk this way. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 27, he puts it this way. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually you're members of it. He's going one step further here. You're not only part of the church. You're not, even, you're not only part of Christ, you are part of one another. You don't think like this, you don't speak like this, but Paul does. Why don't we think this way? We are indoctrinated by the individualism of our time. We talk about personal space, personal time, personal hobbies, personalized devices, a personalized timetable, personalized pleasures. Everything is tailor-made for you. We're individualistic. Sin has come in and destroyed the true community that God was attempting to make in Adam. And Christ is rebuilding that community by the Holy Spirit putting us into one body and making us part of one another. Just think about Paul and how he thinks for a moment. He thinks in terms of a grid. He sees you as in Christ Jesus. And there is a vertical benefit and there is a horizontal benefit. Because you are in Christ by the Holy Spirit, you are joined to Christ in his resurrected humanity as he is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. All spiritual blessings are yours by virtue of the Holy Spirit joining you like a wormhole to where Christ is right now. And all of the benefits that he has won for you Come down through your connection from Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's not the only benefit. It's not only vertical. It's also horizontal. Because you are one body with Christ, you are now connected to every other believer. And you have mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. I'm quoting a hymn. The church is one foundation. This is the wonder of what God has wrought, what he has made in the gospel. To view yourself 
not as an independent individual, but rather as eternally bound to every other Christian comes with automatic responsibilities. So we've, we've covered the theory. Let's begin to get a little bit practical, okay? This unity comes with automatic responsibilities. It necessarily infers that you must now act in a particular way. In our church back in Timaru, Chrissy was once there. You've stolen her. We're very sad. Uh, <clears throat> we'd like to talk about membership. The elders, we push hard on membership. We talk about our membership responsibilities. We talk about being a part of the life of the church. And some people go, Nick, feeling very uncomfortable with all this talk about membership. It feels a little bit legalistic. It feels like you're imposing something upon me. And we need to assure our churches that uh, we're not trying to build a forced, fenced-in community where we're putting laws upon people. And the way in which we encourage our people, as I say, okay, let's look at what Paul says about the church. He says we are literally members one of another. We are literally a body. We are literally united in ways that no one else ever can be. And that must change everything we do, everything we say, and how we act towards one another in the church. All of your life should be radically affected by the truth. This will affect how you use your home, your time, your money, your talents. Now, <clears throat> if you don't think the way Paul thinks, you're going to think, all this talk about church membership sounds like legalism instead of the natural outworking of what it means to be part of the church. Just think of this fact with me for a moment. Your head can be separated from your neck. Your spirit can be separated from your body. A husband and a wife, their one flesh union can be separated. A child can be separated from their parents. But you can never, ever be separated from the body of Christ. Isn't that profound? It is a union like none of those other unions we have. Now, that doesn't mean that you should love me more than your wife, husbands. Okay? As good looking as I am. There are family responsibilities, but we must be giving some expression to the reality. I have one fan over there. I see you, brother. I see you blushing. All right. <clears throat> When we see that we as a body have been put together in this way, and when we see what God plans for us as a body, if we see that we are a body that have been made organically one by the Holy Spirit, we can appreciate that we should be getting together regularly, that we should be giving expression to this unity on the Lord's day. We can see then as we look at the scripture that God has appointed that elders should be preaching the truth in love. And as the word of God flows over us and the Holy Spirit uses the sword of the spirit and the powers of the age to come, come pressing in upon us. And we grow when we get together wherever, where, the, where the brethren dwell together. There the Lord commands the blessing. Wherever two or three are gathered, that's our local church. There the Lord is with us to bless us through his word. We can embrace that because we see that this is how it works. 
It's not a rule. It's not legalism. It's not an imposition. It's the natural outworking of the reality that God has created in the gospel. And so we can happily commit ourselves to the prayer meetings, the midweek meetings, the Lord's Day services, and all of the other aspects of the life of the church. Because we're moving from the truth outward to its logical implications. Here's a a, a good modern example. Don't make your problems my problems. Heard that statement before? That's a worldly attitude, isn't it? How does that fly through the truth we've just seen in Paul? It doesn't fly at all. In fact, it is the exact opposite. In our modern day, we see ourselves as independent and having rights. We don't want to be interfered with. We don't want to have anything demanded of us. Don't make your problems my problems. It doesn't work that way in the body of Christ. Your problems are my problems. Because we are individually members one of another. Well, let me, let me make it sound a little more gentler. Your problems are our problems. So they're not all resting on my shoulders or any of our shoulders individually. It's not one person that carries the whole church. But we do carry, we do bear one another's burdens, as Paul commands. So, to cut yourself off from the church, to shut yourself away from the church, to not be plugged into the church, not only robs you, but it robs me too. Because we are individually members one of another. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 21 to 26. This is, you'll hear it in the way that Paul speaks to the Corinthians. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. Here it is. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. How many of you have uh, got up at midnight? It's dark. You're really thirsty. You get up, go get that glass of water, and as you're walking barefooted, the pinky toe catches on something and goes, You think you've broken it. You're just not sure. What does the rest of your body do? Yeah? Even the eyebrows are engaged. The whole body reacts to the pain of the pinky toe. That's how the body works. One member suffers, we all suffer alike. Or if you see a man walking along with a broken arm, you don't say, hey, look at that broken arm. What do you say? There goes that man with a broken arm. You see him as a whole. This is the way we view one another within the body. We are the body of Christ. 
So those who are distant, those who are indifferent, those who are investing their time, talents, and efforts in other places, they're not living in light of the truth. But you are the body of Christ, individually members one of another. They're living according to a different narrative. They've forgotten the narrative that says, I am a sinner, lost in sin, saved out of destructive selfishness into a family where this pilgrim family supports one another on the path to holiness until death or until Jesus comes again. The narrative they're following is, it's all about now. This is my home. I must grab as much as I can get to satisfy myself before it all goes. They're not living in light of the truth. But we must. And so when Paul wants to encourage the Romans to serve one another as living sacrifices in the church, he first reminds them of the truth of what they are. You are the body. You are individually members of one another. Then, great, let's use our gifts. But he starts with the truth of what we are and moves from there. Sadly, the unity we live out does not match the unity that we have. And we're nearly at an end, so here's a question for you. How do you measure how dysfunctional a relationship is? How do you measure how dysfunctional a relationship is? You have to measure the activity of that relationship against the nature of the relationship. Does the activity of that relationship square up and is it fitting to the nature of what that relationship is? Let's talk about marriage. Marriage is a one flesh union where a couple are to be one mind, one goal, one flesh, one purse, and one in so many other ways. So imagine a couple living in a house. They've each got their own bedrooms. They never talk to each other. They pass like two ships in the night. Is that a dysfunctional relationship? How do we know? Because we know what the nature of their unity ought to be. And we see that the actions of their relationship do not reflect that unity. Now let's think about the church. We're individually members one of another. What do you think the actions should be that are consistent and consistently reflect the unity that we have? It's powerful, isn't it? It's a lot more than you thought. <laughs> we're, we're nowhere near where we ought to be. And so, friends, this is the challenge I want to bring to you. This is the challenge that I've been challenged with, in, and, and our church has been challenged with. Rennie and I, we're the elders. And as we've, as we've seen this vision of what God has made the church to be, it's only obvious then that we want to live in one another's lives and bear one another's burdens and, and have our lives orbit the life of the church. Because when you see it for what it is, when you see what God has made you to be, once you see the indicative of what God has made you to be in the gospel, the imperatives are obvious and flow naturally. So let me end with a few questions. Is this your view of the church? Is the notion of being a body more than a mere metaphor? Do you see this notion of being a body and individually members one of another, the defining spiritual reality out of which you must necessarily live? Do you live right because you think right about the church? 
Does your activity follow your identity? Are you in a dysfunctional relationship with the church? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on what you have done. Lord, you have made us to be something that we could never do with our own hands. You have made us to be the body of Christ, where the power of your Holy Spirit, you have not only united us to our head, Jesus Christ, but also to one another. Lord, what a profound unity this is. An eternal, never-dying unity. Because we can never be separated from Christ. We can never be separated from one another. Lord, help us. Lord, we see this unity. We see it as profound. We see it ought to be life-shaping. We see how Paul in his own thinking sees the whole of the Christian life logically flowing out of this reality. Help us to think in the same way. Lord, that we might embrace our responsibilities. Father, help us to do this because this is what you have made us to be. And Lord, where you command, you also call and equip and enable. So Father, we place ourselves in your hands and ask that your spirit would continue with us to help us to be the church that you've made us to be. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.